On the podcast today, are we heading for a bear market or will this bull keep going? We'll take a look at investor sentiment and how we can prepare for either scenario. We'll also talk to Case Eichenberger and pick his brain about commodities, factor investing, and why we might have it totally wrong on dividends. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm your host, Robin Murray, and with me today, as always, is our chief investment officer here at CLS, Rusty Vanneman. Rusty, welcome. Thanks, Robin. Nice to be here. All right. Well, before we get started, I want to talk about our new name for our podcast. It's very exciting, The Weighing Machine. Rusty, how did we get that name? Okay, so it kind of goes back to an expression from somebody named Benjamin Graham. We've talked about him before. He's sort of the the godfather of value investing and the mentor of Warren Buffett. And he had a saying uh, that Warren Buffett has often mentioned too, that short-term investing is a voting machine and that long-term investing is a weighing machine. And basically, it's getting to the point that in the short term, emotions tend to sort of control market behavior. But over the longer time frame, the important things such as fundamentals and valuations really come to play. So our goal here is to help you know financial advisors and investors stay focused on the long term. And that's how we believe they'll be successful and reach their financial goals. So everything we talk about here on the podcast is through that lens. And what we do with these market events mean for long-term investing. I think another way of thinking about the weighing machine, too, is that it's kind of a play on our methodology of risk budgeting and our kind of the scale that we use to kind of express risk budgeting. So I think the weighing machine is a really clever name trying to describe what we're doing here. All right. And it's a great message. And we're excited for our new name and our new format. And as always, we invite our listeners to get in touch with us and let us know what you think. So, all right, let's dive in. We'll start with a look back at the markets. How did we do in September? How we do in September? So I just finished a lot of quarterly and monthly commentary. So I've been working with timeframes like looking at the week, the month, the quarter, the year, 12 months. So let's just talk about, you know, last month. And last month was another good month in the markets. And uh, the U.S. markets are up about, you know, 2%. Uh, small, smaller companies are up about 6%. So they had been laggards all year, but they came on strong. International markets were positive, but they did lag the U.S. slightly. And of note, emerging markets had a very slight loss, and they've been sort of the strong performers in recent time periods. Still looking over the last year, strong, strong above average returns for all of these markets. Uh, Lastly, when it comes to the diversifying asset classes, such as bonds and commodities, uh, they both had slight losses last month, but for the quarter, they actually had decent quarters, and they still have positive returns over, actually, commodities are still down slightly year-to-date and over the last 12 months. One interesting item, I just want to point this out because I think this is pretty neat, and I did talk about this in the uh, monthly video with with Koshi Edis, but... Uh, 10-year Treasury yields are up about 75 basis points over the last year. That's that's a pretty prominent rise in interest rates. But over that time frame, the overall bond market is still holding on to a very slight gain, which I think is a very important message about uh, fixed income. Anyway, one thing I want to talk about, so that's the review. I just also want to say what's also interesting about September. So we had about a 2% gain in the U.S. market. September and actually October are generally the two worst months on average for the U.S. stock market. You could look at that last 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, whatever time frame you want to pick. So we're kind of in this seasonally weak period. And uh, what's interesting to note is as we come out of this in October, comes a seasonally strong time of year. So November, December, and the early part of the year is usually the time of the year where you see some of the strongest gains in the market. All right, well, let's turn to the overall economy. There's an interesting index that provides a really helpful snapshot of the U.S. economy. That's the Index of Leading Economic Indicators, the LEI. It's published around the 20th of every month by the Conference Board. So first, tell us how this index works. 
Yep. So basically, the the um, leading indicator index is it tries to be a leading indicator for the economy, and it looks at a handful of different economic. Uh, statistics and kind of they compile this these numbers together to kind of give a read and a couple different takeaways is that if you look back over I can't remember the time frame right now it's like a hundred years it's a long time frame is that the leading in leading indicator index when it starts to move lower it does tend to precede recessions and in fact every recession you can see the leading indicator index actually falling beforehand right now the leading indicator index is moving higher it looks very strong and a lot of the underlying data points still look very strong and also improving so um, a lot of people think that we will get into a bear market when a recession is is near and at this point it just does not look like a recession is imminent all right, and what about the global markets? Can we look to the LEI for those too? Well, I should have said the LEI is produced by a, a firm called the Conference Board, and uh, that is a U.S. only indicator. But um, the OECD is an international organization, and it does look at leading um, economic indicators as well for all economies. And I guess the short answer there is, even though it's officially a different measure, is that, again, at the global level, it appears that economic growth is picking up, and it does not appear that it should be slowing down anytime soon. If you look at PMIs around the world, almost every country, I should say almost every country is expanding. And in fact, they're just not barely expanding. They look very robust and looks very strong at this point. Yeah, I think my home country was one of the only countries on that list that was not expanding. Actually, that was. That yeah. was the lowest number on the list. Yeah, that's, that's right. unfortunate. All right. Well, that leads us to the next topic that I want to get to, that's sentiment. And OCLS reviews a number of studies and surveys to get a sense of investor sentiment. So first, why is it important to understand investor sentiment out there? Well, in short, it, it kind of goes back to the short term, the market is a voting machine, but there is a connection between investor sentiment and future stock market returns. In short, if everybody's really, really bullish, then remarkably stock market returns, historically speaking, have tended to be below average moving forward. So it seems kind of counterintuitive at first. And obviously the reverse is also the case. If everybody's really negative and bearish, believe it or not, the market tends to generate above average returns moving forward as well. I think this really is driven by expectations. So if you think about it, if everybody's really positive, everybody's really bullish, and you have good news that comes out, well, you could say that's, that in theory is kind of already baked into expectations and market prices. But if you start getting just less than great news, it doesn't even have to be negative news. If you get less than great news, then the market will often, often tend to sort of reverse course. And so you can see that a lot in emotional extremes in the marketplaces. The market will usually move in the direction that causes the most pain to investors. One of the investors, or one of the studies that we look at, is from the um, American Association of Individual Investors, and um, it's updated weekly. And basically, what they're doing is they're asking investors where they think the stock market is going to go, and. Um, and so right now, when you look at the current surveys, investors are overly cautious, and that does suggest above-average returns moving forward. All right. Well, we talked about this a little bit last time. I want to get back to it because you wrote some really interesting commentary about it in the Weekly 3 this week. You wrote about risk, what you believe to be the biggest risk in the marketplace right now. What do you think? Yeah, I've been sort of riffing on this concept a lot in presentations and and other commentaries that we've done. And, and again, taking a step back, risk, I believe, is best defined as what is it, what element – 
has the potential of destabilizing investors and sort of shaking them out of their investment plans and their portfolios. And the easiest answer, the easiest catalyst to look at is volatility. So how much prices move around and the magnitude that they move around. I think the easy answer is that most people worry about bear markets and prices plummeting and going lower. But you know, I actually think that another big concern, I do think the biggest risk, because like nobody's really expecting it, is that prices can move higher. And right now, in my experience, sentiment does not point to a bear market. And it, you know, it looks like we have a continued bull market, maybe more mid-cycle instead of late cycle. We do have in some of our resources at CLS, we do have a reference guide. And in it, we do have something called the cycle of investor emotions. And, and basically, I think we're at the optimism level, which is sort of mid-level for a bull market. Now, I have written that it would not totally shock me to see the market move up as much as 30 to 50% higher in the months ahead. And I have to be honest, I'm trying to be a little bit provocative there, but I do think that there is a chance that there could be a melt-up market is where or prices just sort of melt up. And in that case, that volatility will cause probably a lot of investment investors and investment professionals to sort of get emotional about it. But in a time like that, it's really a time as, as financial advisors and investment counselors, it's really a time to do our jobs and, and counsel people wisely and sort of tone down that enthusiasm when we get there. Something we did see in the late 90s, something we saw about 10 years ago, is that you sort of get investors just sort of like really just all wanting to get in and messing up their investment plans. All right. Well, I want to bring in our guest now, Case Eichenberger. Case, are you there? I'm here. All right, Case. Welcome. Case is our CLS Client Portfolio Manager. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Case, well, you wrote about commodities in your weekly three this month. Because there's a favorite subject here at CLS. We talk about commodities a lot. But commodities have been out of favor among investors for a while, but we still hold them. Tell us why. Yeah, you know, that has kind of been a favorite topic of ours to start talking about a lot here more um, at CLS. So I want to mention something Rusty said in the last podcast you guys were talking to um, Joe Smith about. He mentioned the concept of diversification, right? Um, basically, if you are properly diversified, you're always owning something uh, you don't want to own. So that's really what we preach here at CLS is being properly globally diversified between several different asset classes, regions, sectors, um, other areas of the market. You know, we got to look outside of traditional stocks and bonds. So right now, we believe commodities is, is really something that deserves a hard look. And, and it is a position we've been including in our portfolios for some time now. With, um, you know, with that in place, you do have stock markets around the globe that are hitting record highs here in the U.S. We've had Something like I, I wrote a few weeks ago, about 150 since the uh, the Great Recession bottomed out, and then globally, um, internationally, a lot of a lot of those markets are actually doing very well this year, hitting all time highs as well. And then you have bonds, you know, just inching slowly higher. Like Rusty mentioned, even with rates moving higher, bonds have still hung on to, you know, pretty strong returns. And and first and foremost, they are great diversifiers themselves, but we believe there may be like a third pillar out there, which is a common term for these real assets. So um, commodities is something that, that can serve as that third pillar. And, and it's something we looked at this year. There really hasn't been a lot of volatility. As we know, there's been very seldom down downward days, even less downward weeks. Um, but something that I've talked to a couple of other PMs about is you've seen a few downward weeks. You've had about let's just say 14 or so negative weeks in the S&P 500 uh, market just this year. Um, you know, that's not a lot. Of that, 
commodities have been positive nine out of those 14. Um, and they've moved really sharply higher, about 1% higher. So, um, you know, we know that correlation won't always be there, but I think it is important to, to recognize that they've definitely you know, held their own in portfolios uh, when we've had some downward pressures in those markets. So um, we like them for that reason. We like them for that for another reason is compared their price or their total return versus stocks total returns. Um, they're very cheap right now. So the insurance out there um, is cheap to buy basically to help hopefully provide differing returns versus stocks and bonds right now. So um, we like them for that. And then um, really just, just going back to the other big aspects of diversification that we try to preach on here, always um, having a lot of different assets in, in your mix. And right now, you know, commodities like Rusty mentioned the last three months have done very well as in it was, we kind of seen inflation expectations pick up a little bit commodities have picked up. So even though they're not quite positive yet this year, um, they are inching closer. And, and we've noticed that um, a lot of people when a year like we've had are starting to just, just look at something in their account that's negative and ask why you own it. And that's really why we own it. Right. And as we've said before, and we'll say again, I'm sure we're always looking to the long term here on the weighing machine. So commodities are out of favor now, but exactly. they need to be evaluated based on our long term objectives, which is keeping balanced, diversified portfolios, helping investors reach their long term goals. So to that point, Case, you also wrote about factor investing last <laughs> month. This is something CLS believes in strongly. But as you said, sometimes we forget why factors exist in the first place. Yeah. You know, I kind of remember, you know, factor investing. Um, I was at a conference in Chicago a couple weeks ago for the, the ETF industry. I had a privilege to listen to some, some key individuals there. And, you know, factor investing has been along for a very long time. Um, it's really not that new of a concept. Um, factors are traditional areas of the market that have provided value over typical market cap. So value stocks, size stocks, quality stocks, for example, those are just a few. Um, so those aren't new, but what is new is really the technology behind them of smart beta that can help us reach these different factors in different ways rather than just picking the value quote unquote style box from Morningstar. We can actually go deeper value. We can combine a few factors together. So the smart beta landscape has really exploded these last couple of years and, and that's why we use ETFs to track them. But I kind of remember a few years ago, I was talking to um, a client and you know, when they started to look at these new smart beta ETFs, they just said, yeah, I'll just hold on to this and they'll always beat the market. Uh, we have to remind somebody that it's not always going to beat the market. There's there's just no way. There's nothing out there that will always outpace the market. But you also have to remind them why these actually exist in the first place, these factors do, because they're really hard for some people to actually hold in their portfolio. So even though you say, you know, looking backwards, like, yeah, I'll just hold that forever. You know, going forward is a lot tougher strategy to do because sometimes these strategies will be very out of favor. Um, and it, it is just hard emotionally and behaviorally for people to hold on to them. So we talked about and I wrote about the value factor, um, which is um, Rusty mentioned Ben Graham earlier in this. It, you know, Ben Graham and, and Warren Buffett really, really started to, to dive into value stocks, um, cheaper stocks in the overall market. But there's a reason these stocks are cheap, right? I mean, traditionally, you know, over a given period of time, maybe they've underperformed the overall market. And since 
human emotion is what drives these markets a lot of times um, in the short term anyway. Um, you may be prone to sell out of value stocks and buy growth. I think that's something that you've probably seen this year is people um, looking at their account, wondering why I own all these banks, for example, kind of on the value side, and why I don't own more tech stocks. So you you have to be disciplined in this. And if you are patient for the long term, you typically are rewarded. So um, factors really exist because they are traditionally a little bit more riskier. Um, but a lot of that has to come down to the behavior because people are, are maybe selling these stocks and, and buying the, the hot dot out there um, or, or trying to chase returns going forward. So we believe in, in really trying to be positive on factors across all areas. So um, we're going to typically look to blend a few of them together to, to provide diversification benefits in their own. All right. Again, as you said, it's about keeping the long term in mind and not chasing performance. So finally, you wrote about dividends. Now, this is pretty interesting. It's also probably pretty helpful to advisors who are listening. You write that dividend paying products, which are really popular, may not be the best way for investors to receive income. How come? Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic. Um, and I'm glad I was able to maybe talk a little bit more about just briefly here because, um, you know, I, I personally, I believe that the dividends are fine. You know, they're they're definitely a big part of total return going forward. We can't just assume um, that price alone is going to drive total returns. So dividends are important, uh, but when we start to look at you know maybe higher net worth clients that have big um, taxable accounts, you know, a trust, uh, a, a TOD, whatever it may be, putting dividends in those types of portfolios may typically not be the best idea, and that typically comes down to first what we are taught is just asset location to begin with. So um, putting a lot of corporate bonds, for example, or high dividend paying stocks in a taxable account will kick off some you know, decent yield, but you're going to get taxed on that yield at the end of the year or at the beginning of the next year. Um, and we believe that you know, dividends aren't, aren't really a free lunch. You do get taxed on them. Um, you know, And I might sound a little anti-dividends on this, but I just want to point out that a few stats that I've been reading up on, um, some research papers, only about six, there are about 60, 50, 60% of the United States stock market that, is, that does not pay a dividend. Um, there's about 40% of the international stock markets, companies in those markets that don't pay dividends. Um, so really what you're looking at when you go further into dividend strategies, you really are going against diversification. You're not really including the other 50% of the market that doesn't pay dividends. So you get less diversified, you get more interest rate sensitivity when you include a lot of dividend payers. And, and really looking back at it, we talked about factors. Dividend yield is, it, it can be considered a factor, but it's more or less somewhat of a value factor and a low volatility factor combined together. It's kind of a dividend yield. So we believe that if you really want to get in deep into factors in your portfolio, there's better ways to do it besides dividend yield, which would be value um, and low volatility. So with that said, um, all that said, at the end of the day, you get taxed on high dividends. But there's really kind of a different way to think about it. And that's what we call creating a self-dividend. It's not really a, a new term out there, but it's something nonetheless to kind of keep in mind where instead of just relying on a big dividend check coming from a fund, for example, which when you get a dividend that fund's net asset value declines. So basically, it's just sending you a dividend check, you're keeping it and not reinvesting it. 
Well, we can do that in a similar way from your account um, by ba being a little bit more conscious of taxes, but basically instead of um, just relying on dividends alone, which tax at typically capital gains rates, let's maybe look at selling some appreciated stock, selling some loss in stock, basically trying to neutralize that. That way you still get your quote unquote dividend from your account, you're getting money that's distributed to you. But we're basically able to offset the taxes because we're looking at long-term capital gains, um, which can be offset always. So it's a little bit different strategy. I think it's just something to keep in mind when you know a client says, I need to take distribution out of this account. You know, let's maybe not be so quick to put dividends in there and high yielding products in an after-tax account. There may be a little bit better way to do that by uh, by creating self-dividend. All right. Well, Case, that's a handy tip for advisors and investors out there. So thank you. But before you go, I know Rusty has some questions right. for you. I do. Thanks, Robin. Hey, before we get to Case, though, we do need mm -hmm. to mention what country you're from. South Africa. I that's think right. I said that. I know. Didn't I not? No, I don't. I don't know if you did, but oh, now maybe we got a point South there. Africa. So yep. I'm sure some listeners were wondering, like, what country the, is she from? The only lagging country on the list. On the PMLI. Yes. List. Yep. Exactly. Well, hello, Case. Hey. And uh, and how's Hollywood? Hollywood's good. I'm. Uh, Sitting basically on Hollywood Boulevard right now with the view of the sign, Hollywood sign, famous, of course, outside my window. So can't complain. That's great. Thanks for being a road warrior for us. So as you know, we love to have our listeners to get to know our portfolio managers. And, and so we're typically having an interview at the end of the, the weighing machine, obviously talking to portfolio managers or guests that we might have in the office, including for our investment committee meetings. But I love having you here. Um, you obviously can speak to the CLS story as well as anybody. You live, breathe, and eat CLS investments. Uh, I always find your insatiable appetite to learn and teach is an invaluable uh, attribute. Uh, you have the heart and soul of an educator and a counselor, and you have Steve McQueen cool. Now, you're probably young enough, you don't even know what I'm talking about, but it does mean you now have a project to go down and find his square or his star right, right. On, the, on the Walk of Fame that or whatever there. True, so. Well, I like to think you have a lot of those attributes because you grew up in small town Nebraska like I did. Um, but, of course, your town was a lot smaller than mine of 223 people. Uh, tell us a little bit about small town Nebraska life. Small town in Nebraska your own life is, uh, you know, it's nothing too exciting, as you can imagine. 220 people is a very small town. We were somewhat close to the bigger cities, quote-unquote, in Nebraska, Lincoln, and Omaha. But, you know, I, I think if I had to attribute one thing, um, to small town life, it's really the types of relationship building. I mean, when you go and look back at it, really, that's what you had. I had, you know, a small town. I had small classes in my high school. You know, not the luxury of really a huge amount of people to go and try to find and talk to and build the best relationships. You had to work with what you got. You know, um, they kind of put it that way, and, and you really learned how to communicate and try to communicate effectively to a lot of different people. Um, you know, so you can still build strong relationships. So, um, you know, small town life, I think is, is probably, you know, people are shifting away from that and, and moving to the bigger cities now, but I do appreciate strongly, uh, where I came from. Yeah. And, you know, even though Omaha obviously is a city, it does have that kind of a small town Nebraska vibe in many ways, because so many of us in Omaha are from small town Nebraska. Well, anyway, tell us about your role at CLS. You're a client portfolio manager. What does that mean? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I like to differentiate myself from the true portfolio management side a little bit, um, call myself client portfolio manager, which isn't a new term. Um, you, you know, listeners probably are aware of uh, big mutual fund shops that still use that term, of course. So, um, 
you know, when I was out traveling with people here in California, talking a little bit about what I do, I, I really think of it as putting on a sales hat and a portfolio manager hat and kind of towing that line um, carefully between the two. So I do a lot of business development, uh, working with the sales team, which I was doing here, visiting some of our bigger broker dealer offices, bigger relationships, trying to drum up business, um, you know, educate advisors. So working with business development on that aspect, but really bringing the quote unquote portfolio manager presence to it, telling our story from the PM perspective um, is really what I'm talking about there. So I do a lot of client servicing, um, business development, but really putting it from a portfolio management CLS perspective, which is a little different than what you get um, you know, from talking to uh, traditional sales and service guys. No, absolutely. Everybody on the team, of course, finds you invaluable. And I think it's because, you know, we might say something and then you're representing us and you say it better than we do. So I definitely appreciate that. So how did you get into this role as client PM? Yeah, it was, uh, so I've been here 10 years. Um, talked earlier. I'm one of the, the younger guys, I guess. Uh, basically graduated, you know, local college uh, in 07 and uh, started out in customer service, uh, started out there, made it through 08, graduated to kind of a, a liaison for new accounts, working with advisors, eventually um, worked my way up to internal sales desk, which was a great experience for me. Um, I, I learned a lot there, really learned a lot from the relationships you build with advisors, relationships I built with my external, which took a while to be honest, but we eventually got there. Um, and then, you know, eventually four years as an internal sales um, associate, I, uh, I started working you know, with Rusty, you here and, and your team over there. So um, I really kind of drew, I guess, an affinity to, to try to understand the financial markets better, try to understand the instruments we're using better, really appreciated the, um, the aspect of what the portfolio managers did. So um, with that, I, yeah, I kind of kind of moved into the, I did move into the portfolio management team and um, but still do a lot of talking with, um, with advisors to kind of bring that sales-esque experience to it. So it's been a, yeah. it's been a good 10 years. So as a client PM, I, I, I guess my next question is kind of a couple questions wrapped into one, but so in your own words, what do you think is the most important part of your position? What do you like most about your position? When really, what's, where's the... What are you most passionate about when it comes to your position? I mean, I think it's a lot of things. What I like the most about day-to-day -day position is, one, I still get to travel a little bit, which I'm doing right now. Um, so that's great to get out of the office a little bit, try to bring it back to the roots of talking to advisors. Um, but day-to-day -day in the office, what I really like is the ability to sit with other portfolio managers, learn from you know some of the smartest guys we have, have time to really research different areas of the market and, and try to weave that into our story of talking to clients. And so really the learning aspect I love and the educating aspect um, I enjoy greatly. Um, so talking to advisors on the phone, face-to-face, -face, clients on the phone, clients face-to-face, -face, just trying to you know, educate them about the markets, educate them about CLS. Those are, those are really the two things. You know, as I mentioned, and as you just talked about there too, is is I believe you have this insatiable appetite to learn and teach. So kind of turning it back, who or what are some of your influences? And you are reading everything. Do you have any recommended reads for uh, people who might be listening to this podcast? So some of my yeah influences, you know, my brief career, I, you know, I, of course, my 
my parents probably, but, uh, you know, that's kind of a, I guess an answer people would say, of course, but I, I, I still attribute that as well. But once, once I got into sales, I think, um, I worked with an external, you know, who's, who's a very analytical guy, wanted to dig deep into the weeds, you know, kind of bring that presence to, um, to his clients. And, and that was an influence to me. I'm, I'm an analytical person based on, you know, a lot of people taking the Gallup survey. I, I came out to that. So I think that was deep down in me already. He kind of brought it out a little bit. Um, and then, of course, uh, just the influences of the team itself has, has really helped. You know, talking, I, I do try to read a lot. I do try to read a lot of blogs out there. Uh, I'm trying to read more books. I think Ben Carlson is somebody we all kind of follow who's been really a good way um, to take the very complex nature of our industry, financial markets, and try to make it very simple. So I think that's something that we try to do here at CLS already, is take the complex, make it simple, don't use confusing speech, try to make it simple. Um, so that is one thing. And then a lot of things I do read, books are more around the behavioral aspect of business. Um, we talked about factors earlier and behaviorally why they exist. So I read a lot of, um, I'm reading a book by Daniel Kahneman right now, basically the investor psychology, um, Richard Thaler as well is, is some of the books I've read. Those are, can be a little nuanced into, you know, the psychology of the investor, which I find interesting if you, if, you know, if you don't find it interesting, I think people like Ben Carlson and the books he writes is, is a good way to start. Yeah. I think those are all great tips. Okay. I have one last question. And so you do a lot of work for young professionals, and you're off to a, a successful professional start yourself. Do you have any advice for young investment professionals? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm, I'm involved with uh, the Greater Omaha Young Professionals and our young professional group here at um, Norsa, our parent company, which is you know basically exists to try to communicate between companies a lot better and communicate within the the Omaha area. You know, if I had to put one way on it, something that I've adhered to. Um, is basically try to get out of your comfort zone. I know that that gets said a lot, but I think it is true. And you do have to work to do it. It just doesn't come naturally. Um, and the way to do that is to try to take on different, don't be scared to take on different roles. Don't be scared to take on different tasks. You know, not just don't be scared to do that, but volunteer to do that. Maybe show that, um, you know, you want to tackle something different. And that's, I guess, what we talked about earlier, something I've, I've done or had the opportunity to do here at CLS is to move from service to new accounts, to sales, to portfolio management. The only kind of hat I haven't worn is like the trading team. So, um, but basically, yeah, just try to take on as many new tasks as you can volunteer for stuff in meetings. Um, you know, try to think outside the box, of course, but uh, getting out of your comfort zone is a big way to, to learn about what you really like to do. Um, you know, love what you do. Don't necessarily do what you love. If I did what I love, I'd, probably be on the beach somewhere, right? That's what people like to do. But really <laughs> yeah. learn to love the position that or the role that you're here to service. And that's um, that's what I've done. Uh, great stuff. Well thanks Case. Um you know safe travels yeah. back home. Thank you. It was mm -hmm. a lot of fun. All right, Case, well thanks for coming in. And Rusty, it was great to chat as always. Absolutely. That'll do it for this edition of the Weighing Machine. Thanks everybody. We'll see you or talk to you next time. And thank you all for your time and trust in CLS Investments.